everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Forensic Anthropology Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Kennyhers. Today, we will be discussing the article, Rib Fracture Frequency and Location Using Vehicular Crash Data from Volume 2, Issue 1, with authors Courtney Hulse. Hi, I'm Courtney Hulse. I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, and I specialize in trauma analysis. And Dr. Kira Stahl. I'm Kira Stahl. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Research interests are in modern human variation, growth and development, and quantitative analyses. I really enjoyed the novel approach to studying trauma and think, if nothing else, just knowing this type of data is available will be a huge benefit for the field. So let's jump right in. Can you please give me three main takeaways from this paper? The three major takeaways that we saw directly from the research was that the first and foremost, age is extremely important as a covariate when doing trauma analysis. A lot of it has to do with the deterioration that happens to the skeleton over time and the bone quality that changes. A lot of times trauma analysis experts or others in the field don't necessarily take that into account when they're doing trauma analysis. So age is a very important covariate to consider. The second thing that I would pull from this study is in this study specifically, speed was not found to be an indicator of severity or number of fractures, which is something traditionally thought of in forensic anthropology to be a factor in creating at least severity of fractures. In this study, that was not the case. And I'm going to deviate here a little bit from the paper, but I think the third main point that I would take from this is that it's possible with enough data to observe major fracture patterns and not just observing a singular fracture or total body trauma pattern to a single individual. If you're looking at multiple individuals, you can extract fracture patterns and interpret that information, which I think is extremely beneficial. In forensic anthropology, as it stands right now, trauma analysis is largely heuristic, right? A lot of people come into it and they have a lot of experience. They've seen a lot of things and they're able to make interpretations through their experiences that they've acquired over the years. Newbies or incoming people interested in trauma analysis or individuals that don't have a lot of experience in the field, they can't make those same interpretations because they don't have the same amount of background experience. So having a large data set, having a large amount of individuals that you can observe in a single study essentially shrinks down all those years you would have needed for practice and allows you to observe these fracture patterns immediately without having to acquire a lot of personal experience. I love that. And I think it ties in later in your paper, too, when you're talking about the downfalls of the way we traditionally start researching this isolated bones and very like three point bending specific scenarios, which don't translate really to an, a living human being that's in a dynamic situation. An additional advantage of looking at a large sample to understand fracture patterns allows us to understand what's normal and abnormal when looking at an individual case. So a lot of what Courtney took from previous research, like abnormal and normal burn patterns from Steve Sims, she adapted that essentially into this type of concept where she could take a large amount of data and then try to present that in a what's a normal and what's an abnormal, even though we didn't frame it in those words, but just where where are these actually happening when you're looking at the full rib cage all at one time and where those fractures happen. What was your data collection like for this? So we 
got put in touch with Siren, which is the Crash Injury Research and Engineering Network, and it's part of the National Highway Traffic Administration. They essentially collect all of the data from car accidents that happen around the United States. They collect the data on the cars, on the individuals inside the cars. They associate all of the medical information that is later put in in hospitals, so they have CT scans and x-rays associated with all of these individuals. We came across this database because we heard that Dr. Agnew was using this and she gave us the idea as a way to find a sample that wasn't something that would typically be used in forensic anthropology, but still had all of the associated variables we needed, like speed or severity of the accident, along with all the medical information and CT images. So we had all of the skeleton essentially in situ associated with all of the outside variables. So we got in touch with Siren and they were really kind about letting us use data. They gave us a full year's worth of crash injury information and we slowly whittled it down from there. We had all the CT scans necessary. We had all of the corresponding medical records and car information. So we essentially lucked out working with these guys. Yeah, that's such a wealth of data to have access to. And it immediately opens up a lot of different opportunities for studying very specific types of trauma. So we didn't come at it knowing that this database existed at all. We knew we were interested in this type of trauma analysis, specifically a a very zoomed out trauma analysis. We knew we needed a lot of individuals and it's very difficult to get that type of information in forensic anthropology. So we kind of went fishing and found this database through resources, stepping into like clinical literature or stepping into car safety literature. There's a lot of information on rib trauma. We found that. We found Dr. Agnew and they pointed us in the right direction. That's awesome. I absolutely love that. Let's get to what you think about this paper might get missed that you feel is important. Personally, I think something that we maybe didn't address as much as we needed to was the biomechanics that are at play here. So when an individual is impacted with a force, there are external and internal forces. And on the external forces, there are applied and there are reactionary. Reactionary just means that if an individual is impacted, they are going to have a sectionary impact point or a point of constraint with something else in their body. So these individuals were all wearing car seatbelts. They were all in cars. They had airbags. They had chairs behind them. So there was a lot of secondary reaction points of force happening. And I think that that's something that could really come into play with some of the other questions that we covered. It's just an interesting thing to keep in mind. I think that fits into with the observation that you had about the posterior rib and it's being fixed to the skeleton as opposed to the anterior, which experienced more fractures. Was there any special circumstances that were in common when those did occur or were they just kind of like age, asymptomatic, just kind of weird idiosyncratic instances? Yeah, no, the posterior fractures were all kind of idiosyncratic. There was no specific trend that we could see with posterior fractures in relation to either lateral or anterior. Anterior fractures, they were, they tended to be related to older individuals and individuals wearing seatbelts or a combination of that, which makes sense if you think about the ossification of the cartilage. And lateral fractures just happen the most often, which I think kind of relates back to the idea of there's so much interactions happening that the rib cage is doing its best 
has to mitigate those forces and those forces end up going laterally. Because that's where both forces from the back and the front, like you were talking about earlier, those internal ones, that response to that external stimulus that's happening. So yeah, they converge into a fracture laterally. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. I just, I suppose I thought I would, that would be significantly more common in front impacts versus side impacts, just because of the antero-posterior compression of the thoracic cavity in that situation, I guess. I We thought a lot of things before we did this study, and that was one of them. It didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah, we do have to talk about speed because that is so strange to me that it, it had no impact. If we're taking a detour into speed, I think that one thing that also needs to be noticed, though, and I think might go into the whole something else that's missed in this study is if you look uh, at the graph that we have in there, the figure two, where it talks about the speed or kilometers per hour and how many fractures there are in relation to the age group. If you look at the oldest age group, they don't drive very fast. All of the older age group incurred a lot of fractures while not driving very quickly. So I think that might have something to do with the fact speed really didn't have an impact is there's a lot of old people incurring a lot of fractures at lower speeds. That's interesting. And that's such a that's such a really good thing to point out about this, too, because if we put all of these into one model, we're going to regress towards that mean and these older individuals have experienced way more fractures. We have, as a field, this tendency to look at really nuanced parts of trauma right? Mandy Agnew does amazing research, but it's very nuanced into the biomechanical principles. Steve Sims and Erica LeBay do amazing trauma research and they care about tension and compression and interpreting that fracture. But Courtney's research really took that, that like she calls it the zoomed out macro view where first let's just start to understand why we have a fracture or who is more likely to fracture or less likely to fracture. And there are a lot of things and Courtney's doing a lot of them in her dissertation research now that we didn't do in this study, right? We could go back and talk about speed and severity and say, well, we didn't measure the fracture or talk about the complexities of the fracture. We just said, yes, it existed or no, it didn't. But this research really came about because there was nothing available in the field right now. And through wonderful collaboration from colleagues like Mandy Agnew and guidance from Erica and Steve, we were able to really create a project that provided some type of foundation for understanding the interaction of the person with the trauma. And I think that that part of it, I mean, speaking from experience, I'll happily throw myself under the, under the table here, right? I've done a lot of trauma analysis and I don't think I regularly took age or sex into account when looking at those fractures. You know, when you do this type of research, it, it, even if we know it in conversation that that makes sense logically, Courtney does a great job of presenting it with some substantiation to give it some strength and really make it a, a point that you can take home and learn from and, and, and incorporate, even if we can't provide a specific, I mean, you can actually provide a probabilistic statement because you did, but you're giving that like just a little bit more guidance on how to do actual interpretations as the forensic anthropologist, which is a little different than what everyone else has been doing prior to this. Yeah, and I would also say that to use the things that Dr. Agnew and Steve and Erica are doing, you're like bridging the gap between those two worlds. 
So like she said, for my dissertation, I'm exploring other avenues of this. So Siren is super useful if you want to look at individuals in complex impact situations like car accidents. But right now I'm finding new ways, especially given the current climate of other CT databases that also have this associated information. And a lot of them are coming from medical examiners offices or hospitals that do CT autopsies. A lot of universities, a lot of medical examiners out there have these databases that have full CT images along with all of the information about that individual. There's health information associated. There's height, weight, ancestry, whatever you want to include. It has all of those information. So this is a really good avenue. CT imaging and digital collections are a really good avenue for people to find a way forward that doesn't include using the usual skeletal collections that we're used to. So with all of this wealth of data that you have at your disposal, one thing that I was thinking about did Siren include, like, if the individual died or not? Yes, there was that information. And there's actually a lot of studies from car safety that come from the Siren database that all talk about comorbidities of the individuals that die in these car accidents and what seatbelts have to do with it, what airbags have to do with it. A lot of this information already exists. There's a couple of studies that just like off the top of my head, I pulled out when I saw your question list and the majority of people in the siren database, depending on either their age category or their injury severity score, they have percentages for how often those people expired or died from those injuries. There's a lot of information saying that specifically in car accidents or blunt force trauma incidents like this, it's the second most deadly type of blunt force trauma that you can incur in an accident, second to the head. So blunt force trauma to the head is the first thing that will kill you. Blunt force trauma to the chest region is the second most injured area that's related to mortality rate. So like individuals that are over 64 years old, 47% of them die when they incur a chest injury in car accidents. Or if you have an injury of a injury severity score of three, so I guess I should say, so a score of zero is almost no injuries. One is like cuts and bruises, small injuries, and a score of six is dead on arrival or there's nothing medical intervention could do at that point. So three just essentially means you have a handful of broken bones. So an injury severity score of three equates to around 37% of those individuals die if those injuries are to the thorax region. So it's a pretty intense number. So one of my favorite things about this is that you did use an analysis in which you purely you admit right up front it's just visual to explore what the data looked like. I think that's a really good idea and I love the use of this because it can convey a lot that words and numbers can't or at least can't make you appreciate and it gives you just a general idea of the data. A way I've been seeing it described is they're called intraocular or something that hits you between the eyes. So can you describe what that visual analysis was that you did and what you learned from it? So the density plot that we created, we essentially mapped every single fracture that we came across in the data set onto a rib homunculus. And then we uploaded those 
coordinates into R and created these density plots. So the more fractured a single area was, the more dark the color would be in the image, associating that with more fractures in those areas. So the image that we have immediately shows you where the darkest parts of that rib cage are, which conveys those are the parts that are the most commonly fractured. And even if you didn't read anything else in this article, you could look at that image and say, okay, these are the most commonly fractured locations in car accidents in a rib cage. So it conveys a lot of information in a single image and it makes it more digestible, I think, images do. Certainly. And I mean, it would be so hard to describe in text what you're, what this is actually telling you. You can summarize it with a visual aid, but trying to purely describe this would be much more difficult and it wouldn't really be impactful the, the way that this is in particular. These types of studies show that you can utilize way more information than we traditionally do. And even though it's not everything, we know what we can say given the type of thing we've structured, right? So this is like a opening of the door for people to think about how we should start utilizing everything better. Like how, how do we get better? I think that it really highlights to, you know, we talked about it earlier with the types of data you're getting and the information, but I think just acknowledging what the data sample you have is and what its limitations are and its benefits. I think sometimes we want to believe that our samples are perfect all the time and we don't do a good enough job as contextualizing the limitations that we have in terms of the findings that exist. So this data set is remarkable because of all the known factors. It's also really limiting to forensic anthropologists because we don't generally look at people that are in car crashes and interpreting all of the things that are happening with it. But it gives us the foundation to understand the interaction of all those demographics that are interacting with force and velocity and, and how it's responding. You know, Courtney can then take this information and go back into a medical examiner's office where you don't necessarily have the, the crash data as in much detail, but you have an understanding of the demographics in more, right? You have, you're gaining that information from there. And then by incorporating information from Dr. Agnew, you have more of the nuanced biomechanic information, right? And so I think talking about that data, its limitations, how and when it can be useful, and then just really working together with other colleagues, making better research and kind of connecting those dots, right? Because you had said earlier, Mike, that Courtney was do, like bridging the gap, which is, I totally agree that this is kind of that in-between research, but it is real success in trauma analysis is really going to be when you pool all the brains together that are working from the most nuanced to the to the broadest brushstrokes because then it's a collaborative approach where you can actually make true transformative gains in the field yeah i i think that's absolutely perfect and i think it's the bridging of how with why so if steve and eric are the why then mandy's the how right. this is everything in between this is the way that you get in between this is kind of showing you the parameters of what we can and can't say given what we know at this time and i think that's the real utility in this type of research is that it's reducing our uncertainty and we keep moving in that direction until we can start saying some more concrete things about it but the only way to get there is to keep reducing our uncertainty and that's always going to be bounded by the samples we have at our disposal and it seems like you guys found a really good way to get around the traditional sample problem that we have, which is skeletal collections that are notoriously difficult to update and are pretty limited in their compositions. So 
I think it's a good time to ask, given everything you know now about this type of research, looking at trauma this way, if you can go back in time when you first got access and you were going to set this up, is there anything that you would do differently? I think I, I didn't have the option, but if I had the option, I would make a larger sample size. Obviously, I would include as many individuals as possible. I also, going back to some of the other stuff that we've talked about, I would be interested in, if I had a larger sample size, creating more categories. So trying to catch a little bit more of the nuances between the age groups or the speed groups or anything like that. I also, another big thing I really would like to explore in this research is the prevalence of CPR. That's something that I've kind of included later on in research, but it didn't occur to me until I started presenting this research and thought, oh no, like this is something that happens in these scenarios. People are pulled out of the car, CPR happens, CPR results in rib fractures. It's something that could very well play a factor in some of these incidences. And I think that including things like CPR or other incident details would be extremely important in finding out a little bit more like weeding out a little bit more information from this data set. Yeah, I think that's perfect. And it's, that's like a, that's both an inductive and deductive approach to the situation is there's going to be a million covariates that can possibly influence this. You'll never be able to get to all of them, but there are things that we can figure out or deduce from the data that we have at our disposal. And that's what you're doing now is you're triaging the most kind of likely ideas given what you know. So these are, it's, a iterative cycle of hypothesis testing that yeah, you can just keep chasing down and figuring out a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. So what's next for you? How's this uh, moving forward? You had mentioned you're doing the entire skeleton and you're going to supply that wonderful code to everybody. <laughs> yes. So I stepped beyond this in a couple of different directions. So I have the full body skeleton or the total body trauma in studies that we mentioned before, where we are going beyond just the ribs and incorporating samples from ME offices in multiple locations and attempting to do the same thing, but with an entire skeleton. And we're also, for my dissertation, I am taking this even further. So I have health factors included in it. I have more variables. We have more individuals, many more individuals. We have geographic location. We have health, we have, you know, inner city versus rural individuals. So everything that could influence the demographics, we're trying to cover more of those factors that you mentioned, more of those things that could be influencing something. We're trying to chase those down and find those in my dissertation. But yeah, so there's a couple of different avenues that we're going from here. There's a lot more research to be done. What type of research do you think is missing? What Where do you think we need to go for trauma in particular? Is there any, any avenues you think that need to be explored or that you yourself are excited to get to once you're done with all this PhD business? I think if someone is going to do trauma analysis, specifically nowadays, they should make a study of biomechanics. I feel like we have a little bit of that information in the field right now, but there's so much more information and it's so much more in depth, especially when you're dealing with things that are unusual bones or flat bones like ribs, they don't fracture the same way as a long bone was. We understand the biomechanics of a long bone because it's relatively simple. There's information out there about 
these types of bones as well and how the biomechanics can actually improve your research. I also would suggest to someone that's working in trauma analysis to step beyond forensic anthropology, go into clinical research. There's a lot of information out there that can be incorporated into our own work and do nothing but improve our work and branch it out. There's so much information that's already out there that could improve understanding the why and the how of how fractures happen and what that can mean for interpretation. Thank you so much to Courtney and Kira for taking the time to talk trauma. I'm really excited to see what might come out of this research. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in the nearish future with an interview with Michaela Spiros on the standardization and utilization of postcranial nonmetric variables. Be good.